Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we are joined by Pam Allen, author and literacy expert, to discuss reading practice in schools. So join us as we explore teaching literacy to deaf students, training colleagues to teach reading and writing, and the power of reading aloud. Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. The autumn term is now well underway and I have spent the time since we last spoke scoring the annual inter-house tug-of-war competition, helping my tutees and colleagues navigate the new UCAS application process, proofreading a lot of early application student personal statements and doing a bit of teaching in between. This has been, of course, also, the month for working out which seemingly wrong GCSE English language and literature grades should be reviewed based on deciphering the minimalistic hieroglyphs that adorn digital scans of exam scripts these days. While on-screen marking in essay subjects certainly facilitates the quick release of scripts to students and staff, I can't help but feel that on-screen marking has had a negative effect on the accuracy of English marking. Not only do we generally read less accurately when we read on screen rather than on paper, but some students' handwriting becomes virtually illegible once we can no longer see the pen pressure that has been applied to the page. I also wonder how frequently markers of essays bother to scroll back through student work to check that the conclusion is logically signposted by each of the six or more paragraphs that have preceded it before arriving at a final judgment on band placings. This process is certainly more awkward and more time consuming than simply flipping through a printed A4 answer booklet. One has to consider too, of course, that Ofqual's official definition of accuracy is met where final grades are accurate to plus or minus one grade in a school context where the difference between a grade three and a grade four has considerable consequences for schools, departments, teachers and students, especially when individuals awarded an English language grade three should actually have been awarded a grade four. One only ever establishes this truth by challenging the seemingly erroneous grades, and yet the apparently correct grades in enormous cohorts typically go unchallenged, even though the same accuracy standard must inevitably apply to these grades too. All of which persuades me that we should be looking to move to a distinction, merit, pass, non-pass model for GCSE in the future, as the existing grades one to three are regarded as both pass grades and fail grades, depending upon who you speak to 
in any given year and the reason for that conversation. I see no worthwhile justification whatsoever for telling students that grades one to three are past grades when English and maths departments up and down the country are then obliged to treat them as though they are not. Away from all the administrative hassle of leading an English department in 2023, I have been busy working with colleagues to promote the benefits of reading for pleasure in our college. This year, we have implemented a 20 minute period of free reading that our year seven to year 10 students complete before their evening prep work each weekday. The aim is to re-establish reading for pleasure as an ordinary feature of a rich, imaginative, intellectual and cultural life. Quite a lot of people in our society appear to have forgotten just how sophisticated a technological achievement a printed codex book actually is, an artefact technologically so sophisticated that its form disappears as we engage with its core function and referring, referring to it as a device would sound totally absurd. However, it enables us to carry around the ideas of some of our greatest thinkers in a low-cost, conveniently pocket-sized format that never needs charging or a firmware update. We can easily annotate it with a pencil and bookmark those passages we may wish to return to at a later date with a physical bookmark. We can take it out on the tube to while away a tedious district line journey or use it in a relaxing bath once the work day is done. And when we no longer need it, we can give it away to others so that they might benefit from it as well. When we consider the wealth of developments in printing methods, typeface design, cover art and binding systems that have gone into creating a product we can typically hold comfortably in one hand, I defy anyone to tell me that the book is not the most powerful technological product in the 21st century classroom. So we are investing a lot of time in making sure that our boys and our girls have a genuine sense of what the book is and what the book can do. An essential part of our strategy is to make sure that the student reading is being supervised by a member of staff reading alongside them. How often do we tell students that reading is crucial to their academic and personal development, while rarely beyond the typical English secondary classroom being seen doing this ourselves? Whether it's reading the latest best-selling novel, an obscure work of minor 18th century poetry, or a biography about a sporting hero. All of these reading encounters either prompt immediate conversations or sow the seeds for conversations that will arise in the future. This week, one year 10 students said to me, Sir, is that slightly fox jaw reading? To which I replied, yes. I thought so, he said. One of my dad's friends works on that. And then we both got back to our reading because 
men and boys do read too. Despite what some of the more vacuous-minded YouTube influencers might be telling them, many of the most influential men in history were committed readers, because men who don't read the thoughts of others only ever have their own to fall back on. When their housemaster comes in with a book and sits down on the sofas to read with them, taking a break from the mountain of other schoolwork that needs doing, the allotted 20 minutes are gradually stretched to 30 minutes and not a single year 10 boy checks the clock, stares out of the window or looks up to see what the house dog might be barking about. It's still early days, but this is what we are looking to develop across the college. One of the pleasant spin-offs of this development has been the increasing number of colleagues who come up to me in the common room now and tell me what they're reading, why they're reading it, and how much they have welcomed the opportunity to do a bit of reading for themselves, as most full-time staff in a seven-day boarding school are likely to be on site for 60 hours or more a week. At no other point in their day are they so entirely liberated from the regular interruptions of iPad notifications, email alerts, and low-level administrative chores. Suddenly, at staff lunches, I can have a maths teacher telling me about hard-boiled science fiction on my left, and a classicist telling me about some new translation of Euripides on my right. In time, I am hopeful that we will hear similar conversations around the student dining tables too. Another key strand of the reading drive involves giving students the freedom to share their reading on Friday evenings with their peers, which takes various forms, including students sharing the reading of a book of common interest, students reading passages aloud to the whole group, and students discussing the themes, characters, and plot lines of their texts. All this book talk is central to the slow building up of reading communities that exist at the levels of friendship groups, year groups, house groups, and the whole college. We're currently exploring meaningful ways of involving our sick form monitors to assist with this community building. And when we get this set up, I think we'll be closer to realizing St. Benedict's injunction that on the Lord's day, let all have time for reading. Over the summer, the DfE also released new stat non-statutory guidance that makes it very plain that schools should regard it as their responsibility to ensure that students engage with regular and frequent reading where they are aware that this does not happen at home. To me, this guidance very clearly implies that boarding schools, despite being amongst our busiest and most highly timetabled educational institutions, simply must create ring-fence time for their students to engage with books in the meaningful ways that will support more effective and efficient learning across the curriculum. So in tonight's show, I'm pleased to say we will explore a range of ways in which reading can be encouraged, developed and established in schools with American teacher, literacy expert and author Pam Allen. Pam is the author of 27 books on children's literacy, engaging children with books and reading-focused teaching practice. She is the founder and CEO of Dewey, a learning platform designed to support learning collaboration between the school and the home. 
the founder of Lit World and Lit Life, supporting best practice in the teaching of reading and writing, and World Read Aloud Day, an event that highlights the benefits of reading aloud to children and is celebrated by over 90 million people in 170 countries and 50 states. Pam has received a number of awards for her work in the field of reading advocacy, including the Teachers College of Columbia University's Distinguished Alumni Career Award and the National Council of Teachers of English, CEL Kent Williamson Exemplary Leader Award, and has worked extensively as a social uh, influencer and education strategist. And I'm delighted that Pam joins us on the line now. Good afternoon to you, Pam, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio today. Hello, Christopher, and thanks so much for having me on your show. I hope I've given people a, a good overview of your career to date. Is there anything else I've missed, though, that you'd like to add before we start? Oh, thank you so much. No, I, I was very uh, happy with how you wove it all together. And uh, maybe the only most important thing I'll say is I'm the mom of two wonderful daughters and, uh, and a little baby grandson now. So I get to see another generation beginning to learn about reading and uh, the excitement of that very beginning of literacy. So uh, that's, that's important and, uh, and exciting. And I just uh, always am amazed by the miracles of, of reading, really, at every age. Yes, it's worth emphasizing, really, isn't it, where that reading journey typically starts? Oh, yes. I mean, it's it's really amazing because he's only 18 months old. But I mean, just from the very, very beginning to see him gesturing towards literacy and um, and having the opportunity to really listen for the the ways in which through our voices and through our expression and through the nearness to books um, and even, you know, songs and lullabies, all of that, you know, is literacy and and uh, and it's just a, such a wonderful thing. And, and part of my work now with Dewey is really focused on helping families feel empowered by that and not overwhelmed, but to make sure that literacy uh, and reading uh, aloud is a, a part of daily life, um, because right from the beginning, it's just so important. And we've spoken before, Pam, haven't we, about your particular route into becoming a teacher. And it sounds like reading in the home really took you on the path that you've subsequently followed. Would you like to open up by saying a little bit about that and the route you took into the profession? Yes. I mean, when I think about um, how early I, my memories are of the feeling I had when being read to, um, how powerful and profound that has been in my own life, and then how reading has been such a source of uh, solace and inspiration for me throughout my whole life from the very beginning. I feel no wonder um, I, I'm so happy to be able to give all of my work life to this uh, purpose because my earliest memory is of my mother reading aloud to me from Blueberries for Sal, which is a beautiful book, picture book by Robert McCloskey and one that I read to my daughters and now I'm reading to my little grandson, Gus, and there's just something about the nature of that book where uh, McCloskey talks about this little Sal is trailing along behind her mother um, as her mother's collecting blueberries and she just keeps eating them out of the pail. So when she puts the blueberries back into the pail, you hear the, the blueberries go kerplink, kerplank, kerplunk. 
And then of course, side by side to that, there's a mama bear and a baby bear doing the exact same thing without a pail, of course, but also on the hunt for blueberries. And to this day, I, you know, I can feel that sense of closeness with my mother and listening to her voice. It was so comforting and companionable and also just loving the way the words looked on the page, even though I didn't know how to read them yet. That that's my earliest memory really of anything. So when I think about that, uh, in relation to my life and my work, I know that this has a significance for me because um, I think literacy reading is much, much more than just words on the page. It's really about how we keep ourselves company during hard times. It's about how we make somebody laugh. It's about how we make ourselves feel better. It's just about saying, I'm not alone in the world. And I think that all started for me so early. And I, I, I know I was truly fortunate that, that my parents did love to read and shared that with me. But as I've said to many, many parents since then, there's a lot of ways to pass that on. Even if reading hasn't felt so good for you as an adult, you can still turn the corner on that and have those shared experiences that will be delightful and surprising even to you as an adult, even if you don't love it. So not to be dissuaded by my story, but instead to say, what, what are the kerplink, kerplank, kerplunk experiences that you can create for your child? And maybe surprisingly, you'll find something very special and momentous about those moments too. Thank you for that. And you've moved through teaching and you took your teacher training course. You have to tell us a little bit about how you moved from that experience of being a reader at home to being a professional reader as you <laughs> move through your academic career and then right. into teaching reading. How does that progression yeah. work? Wow, I love that question so much, uh, Christopher. Thank you for asking. I, 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 you know, it's interesting too because yesterday, uh, this two days ago, I went up to my uh, alma mater, Amherst College in Massachusetts, to speak to students there about their own career paths, and I told them how so much of my earliest memories and then my life as a university college student um, really impacted my desire to follow this trail and. Um, and I said, you know, so much of the time we think about work as what did we major in or what is our uh, skill set? But for me, I think I would always ask the question, what has, is something that has made you truly happy in your life? And how can you find ways to stay as close to that happiness as you possibly can? And I think that for me, when I started to volunteer as an undergraduate student in our local community, I would just go to the local bookstore and pack up some books and bring them with me in my book bag to the local community center. And I would just sit down, plop myself down and just read aloud to the children there. I didn't really have any teaching experience. There was no really very well organized form for volunteerism, but I just, I had a little time on my hands and I thought I'd like to do something good for people. And this is something I've always felt strongly about. And as I started to do that, I realized they're really changing that even when I'm reading to them, even if they're not reading themselves, but me just reading to them later, their teachers would say to me, they, they seem different in their class since you came, what did you do? Were you giving them some technique? You know, what, what happened? And I thought really it wasn't anything, but the fact that I was kind of trying to model myself after my mother's behavior, which was very much open, just loving and very, very, much about the experience of being read aloud to. And from there, I, I 
ended up um, teaching after college uh, in a wonderful little school um, where the, the principal, uh, the headmaster gave me a lot of freedom to create my own environment and to make my own world for the children. I, I, I was very lucky that that's how my career started. So I could get the sensation of what that feels like to do wonderful things with children without a lot of constraints. And within that, I focused a lot on that read aloud and giving children books to read that they could take home. I did not mind if they didn't bring the books back to school. I thought it was really good that they would have books in their home. I had no pedagogy. I hadn't gone to graduate school yet. I didn't have any research base for why I thought something was right or wrong. I just knew in my heart that I could see the children becoming very excited. And um, then I, 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 I was very interested in language development and I was very interested in how children gain language skills and acquire language skills through both reading, writing and speaking and listening, which is the real definition of literacy. And it was just great. I mean, I, they, they were so receptive and uh, we, I mean, we made plays and shows and we sang and made up our own songs. We wrote our own books. We would, I would read books to them and then they, I would say, let's make our own books. And they would we just staple paper together and make our own books. And um, I ultimately went to graduate school to become a teacher of the deaf because by then I had uh, branched out a bit and had been spending quite a bit of time in the deaf community, um, in my local community and, um, and feeling that there was also a, a power in the different kinds of visual forms of the read aloud and the and the ways that that deaf children were getting access to literacy there were so many blocks to that but i thought i bet we could remove a lot of those obstacles if we thought about this a little bit differently and so that was it you know that kind of, that really set me off on my adventure and um and i was just uh extremely fortunate that i had several mentors along the way both uh fellow teachers at the School for the Deaf, where I taught uh, a woman by the name of Sister Kathy Costello, who has passed since then, but she was, um, from the beginning, said to me, there's something about what you're doing that feels like it means a lot to the children, and I want you to just keep doing whatever that is. And, um, and then when I went to the university at Teachers College, I had several professors there who noted um, that I had an aptitude for teaching children how to read and uh, really encouraged me and put me in front of people and said, you know, you've got to see what she's doing. She's helping children who don't seem to ever have been able to learn to read, to turn the corner. And, um, and that was it. And the rest, you know, I just went on from there. But it was started really from those earliest days. And then I just kept following the trail of my passion all the way through, really through till now. You know, I, I know how much I love it. And I want for other, for every child to have that experience. I'm particularly struck by the Amherst College connection because of course, famously, that's Emily Dickinson's college. And uh, she lived a very, very seemingly yes. private written life. So this shift between moving from the private reader, mm. the private writer into the public reader and the public writer. Of course, she made her own books too with lots of pressed flowers in them. How did that, yes. did that have any effect on your progress towards what you do now? Yes. I mean, first of all, I love that you know that she lived there. That's awesome. Um, and I'm not surprised that you would know that, but a lot of people don't tend to know that. And you know, that did have a big, in fact, because Amherst was a very literary environment, 
there were several momentous connections uh, of authorship around uh, the college, one of which was that Emily Dickinson's house was there and you could go visit it and see the desk that she sat at. And, um, and we, uh, my father and I, we always loved the story of Emily Dickinson because there was something we read where she was going to go to university herself. And then her father said, I need you too much at home. You better stay home. So my father always joked that he almost said, you can't go to Amherst. You need to stay home like Emily Dickinson. But, um, but, but I did go away. Uh, Emily didn't, but I felt like she was a real inspiration to me because I felt, I felt like her poetry was incredibly radical for someone who was supposedly really shut off from the world. She had so much wisdom and so much instinct. Um, for someone to write a sentence like hope is the thing with feathers um, or to write about death and uh, understand kind of the deeper sense of longing and belonging that she had is really powerful. And I would go and visit that house and just watch and think about, you know, how many people still came to visit her life. And I read um, she had some amazing letters that she wrote back and forth with people in her life. And I thought that that's such an incredible thing that even though it seemed like her life was very solitary, she actually had quite a lively uh, social community around letter writing. And um, that actually came into play a little bit later for me in my college career when um, one of my best friends um, went into the Navy after, uh, after Amherst and she was the only woman, she was a helicopter pilot, she was the only woman um, on her ship where they were sent out to sea. And she said to me, would you organize a letter writing group because I'm gonna be so lonely without my women uh, friends on the ship. And so for two years, uh, we did like Emily Dickinson did and just wrote letters to each other. And I think that kept us very close we connected to each other. So that was another Emily tie-in. But the other great author, poet, who spent quite a bit of time at Amherst College um, and had a, another huge influence on me was Robert Frost. And in fact, the library at Amherst is named for him. Um, and he taught at Amherst um, and he wrote uh, several essays uh, that where he would write directly to the Amherst students. Um, and I would say he's probably, um, Yes, I mean, I would say he's probably my number one most important writing influence uh, of my life. Um, he always talked about how he tried to write the way people spoke, and um, he made poetry very available uh, for the average person. You didn't have to be a scholar to read his poetry. Um, and, uh, and so that, he also had a connection to Amherst, and, um, and so Throughout my college experience, I, I just couldn't believe that two of my most important reading writing heroes, Frost and Dickinson, were both associated with the college I went to. And it definitely had an impact. And when I started teaching, the, I used those poets, even for very young children. I used Frost and, and Dickinson as examples of incredible poetry and accessible poetry where everybody can get access to it. It's not just for certain people, it's for all people. And, um, and I really like that there, you know, I think it was Pablo Neruda who said, poetry should be like bread, it should be for everyone. And um, I think that was something I really felt, you know, felt for that throughout my life that why everybody should have access to literacy, it shouldn't just be for the elite few, um, or simply stated, kept from people who might 
be powerless in our societies, like women and girls in the in the global world community of literacy, much less likely to go to high school and become fluent readers. And I felt, you know, started to early on get a sense that is really unjust and um, that there is such a thing as literacy justice. And we, we have to do that work because uh, reading is the ultimate freedom tool and everybody should have it. Yeah, well, it sounds like we've got three poets in common there and uh, <laughs> three good guiding lights to have actually Neruda, mm. Dickinson and Frost. Um, one of the techniques I particularly enjoy using with my students um, when I have free space to teach something that isn't going to be examined in the exam mm. is to give students a big block of text, which is essentially an Emily Dickinson poem with all of the punctuation line breaks taken out. Just give them the metrical patterns <laughs> and the rhyme scheme and then get them to reassemble them. Oh, that's great. It produces some quite entertaining results sometimes. <laughs> what a great and activity. Then, yeah, we then go into quite detailed discussions about why you choose to end a verse where you do and mm. generate some really quite powerful discussion. So taking these poets into the classroom, then how would you say work with a poet like Frost or Dickinson when you're teaching deaf students who can't hear the rhymes that they're very carefully either trying to hit or trying not to hit. Yes, I mean, I, th those poets were actually very successful for me in my, in my teaching of deaf students because all of three of those poets are very visual. And, um, and even though uh, my students couldn't hear the same cadence the way we can, um, we certainly could do a lot around beats and um, and a kind of rhythm, and even when signing the poems to d make decisions about where those how big the sound would be or how small the 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 expression would be in the signing that my students were doing around those poems, and then also the poets um, Frost is a really good example of this. I mean he he really wanted you to see things. He was an observer of nature, uh, of humanity, um, of people's ways of being. And he was very patient because he was a farmer. He was an agrarian uh, person. He, he spent his time in slower ways. And I think that as a result, um, his poetry really conveys that. And the my students really resonated to his poetry. I think they, um, they we did a, a lot of thinking about, you know, what would his poetry look like if done through imagery? So if we listen or if I signed his poet poems or my students signed his poems, then we would draw them. Um, we would create, uh, even if they weren't, um, you know, uh, precise renderings of the of the images, but like, what's the sensation you're having while you're listening to this poem? What, what colors are the poems? What mood is that scene? Um, and I think for me, one thing I learned from my deaf students was how I think in some ways we're very, uh, we look at poetry very narrowly through the sound lens because we think that that's what the poet intended, but there's so many other senses that the poet is using and, and Frost being the great example, because 
he was as a farmer you know he was watching the seasons change he was looking at the new fallen snow he was walking on a path with the crunching leaves under his feet he was um, feeling and sensing his environment and uh, and i think my students really appreciated that and then conversely another poet we really loved who also did a lot of sound and rhythm in his poetry was langston hughes um, and you could talk about that, but you could also talk about how he too was really observing his urban environment in Harlem and really being incredibly sensor, like a sensory overload in a certain way in his poetry on what he saw, not only in the street around him, but also in, in the people's faces around him and, um, in his, in the women's, the elders, the stories from long ago and people carrying the narrative of their histories. Uh, my students really love those poets and, um, and they sure taught me a lot about the power of poetry and how we have to use all our senses, whatever available senses we have, um, to, to do that. I do, I do love your activity. I, I'm going to try that myself. I think that's a great, that's a great one. And how do you combine the teaching of the written word then alongside signing? Because these are two quite different languages that students are working with. They're essentially becoming bilingual, aren't they? They're definitely bilingual. I mean, I think students that have a big leg up if they grew up in a deaf environment. In other words, if a student's parents are deaf and they grow from the beginning, they have language then they become bilingual a lot more easily than our students coming to us whose parents weren't deaf, um, who really did not get access to a full language, maybe for the first five or six years of their life until they finally came to school and got access to American Sign Language. So there were, was quite a bit of difference between students um, that you would see and pick up on right away. But as far as the connection between reading, writing, and signing, something that I think is really interesting about sign language is that it's so spatial. So it's a three-dimensional language. So when you're telling a story, you can have something happen in front of you or behind you or to the side of you. Um, you can make your hands move fast or slow. Um, you can make your signs smaller or bigger, depending on the intention that you want and the, and the sort of tone that you're creating. And on the page or on the screen, you can't really do that. So it feels a little bit flatter. And something I've said to my students was, nobody can tell a story like someone who's a deaf person telling that story in American Sign Language because it's so vibrant and there's so many parts to it. And you can go uh, past, present, and future. You can tell that story spatially in a really exciting way that goes backwards and forwards. But so what I'd say to my students is it's never going to be like that. That's amazing. And it's incredible to watch and it's incredible to tell a story with that capacity. But then, you know, they could bring that, that expertise with them to their um, writing English on the page or on the screen. I would say to them, you know, we have other techniques for helping you to tell the story to your reader. Um, about past, present, and future, or about a big event or a small event. And it's really about teaching them as bilingual students, here's how you do it in your language, now let's try it in ours, rather than saying English is better than sign language. And so you're going to tell a little bit there, but then we're going to come to the page and do it better. I never did that. I always said, you, you have so much in your language that offers us rich storytelling 
and we're going to have to do a somewhat as good of a job on the page, uh, I'm going to give you some strategies for how to do that. But it, it definitely is an ongoing work that this, that student has to do because if they get up in front of the class and tell a story in sign language, it's like they have their facial expressions, they have their, their hands in many different parts of space. Um, and so I try to help them see that vocabulary and dialogue and punctuation and sentence structures are all similarly used as strategies to help people enjoy your story. But it's really interesting, it's very exciting. And, uh, and, and it's really motivational for them to hear me say that I'm not negating their language, I'm celebrating it and they're celebrating it. And then, you know, we can go from there. Thank you. And of course, in most classrooms, in most schools across most countries, we're going to encounter those learners who find the process of learning to read and write a bit more challenging. How did you adapt your practice to suit those struggling learners? Oh, it's, you know, and I think you're absolutely right about this. Uh, there, there are too many struggling readers and writers. And um, my, my techniques have been um, very much about integrating a few things. One is to see reading and writing as going together rather than teaching them separately. I always think about reading as breathing in and writing as like breathing out. And so I, my students always do a lot of both. So we don't wait till the end of a book to write about what we're reading. We, we start doing that right from the very outset. So our students are taking notes, they're writing letters to each other. Um, we're using technology to have chats about the books that we're reading. So the writing is not waiting. The writing is happening as part of that breathing in, breathing out process. And then the second thing that, um, for me, the techniques around the struggling reader and the struggling writer have a lot to do with uh, honesty and authenticity and really asking my students, what is getting in your way right now? What feels hard about reading? And being very open to hearing what they have to say. Don't shut them down. Don't say, oh, don't tell me that. You should already know that by now. But really listening to them because a lot of times our students have gaps in their learning that we might not be aware of and the test doesn't show but when they come to our classroom in you know fifth or sixth form or sixth grade they come in there and they are already really struggling it's much harder for them to just snap their fingers and say oh i'll just catch up on that or i'll figure that out pretty quickly they've already had a, a lot of time to feel ashamed of what they're not doing as well as everyone else and so some of my techniques have to do with really opening up the conversation and saying where do you feel like things are the hardest or when does reading feel the most challenging and i want you to just explain that just a little bit to me so think about it as if they were coming to see you as the doctor of reading um, just like you would when you go see the doctor and you say you know i've been a little short of breath and the doctor says well tell me when that when is that happening is that when you're going up the stairs is that when right when you first wake up uh, is that after you've eaten a big meal and already that person, he or she is a diagnostician. And so they're asking the why questions or when or how or what. And we don't do that in reading. We just assume everybody has the same problems. And that's just not true. Um, recently, I was asking a student that very question. You know, why do you think you're having a hard time? When are you having a hard time? Where are you having a hard time? And he said to me, the worst part of my time is when I'm at home. 
And I said, tell me a little bit more about that. It turns out it's very noisy at home and he needs a lot of quiet when he's reading. So we sat down with the parents and we just said, you know, give him a little space, um, give him some earphones, uh, let him have the, the, the quiet he needs. But for another child, the, the answer might be totally different. And so I think that that strategy of being an open listener and being working as an ally with your students to say, I'm, I want to change that for you. I want you to feel really good about reading because reading is awesome. Uh, but I understand that it's feeling hard right now. So I'm going to try to help you uncover uh, what's not working. And then the third thing is, once you get to some of that, is that, you know, some of our students really are having trouble comprehending. But for other students, it might be years have gone by and nobody really, really, really ever taught them um, to read phonetically or to really break down the sounds and the codes and words. And, um, and it's never too late to do that work. So we can, we might have to back up a little bit uh, at times, but as long as we don't make our students feel embarrassed for doing it, there's no reason why we can't say to them, look, we're gonna go back to the beginning and just get you some of these skills under your belt. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You'll pick them up pretty quickly and then let's go forward. Well, what an incredible early education journey, Pam. It's really um, a fantastic background to your early career and some of the practices you've been putting in place in the classroom. I think in the next section of the show, we might return to some of these ideas about how your classroom discoveries have helped you in developing programs to train colleagues in other classrooms, in other schools across across your local community and then wider afield, particularly in the teaching of literacy and picking up on some of those challenges that individual students face. We'll be right back after this. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is considering significant reform of A-levels in England, which, according to the BBC, could see the introduction of what it calls a new British baccalaureate. The PM's plans could include the compulsory study of maths and English up to the age of 18, as reported in the Daily Telegraph. It's not the first time Mr Sunak has considered a shake-up, having previously said during an unsuccessful leadership campaign last year that he wanted all young people to study maths to 18. Foreign Office Minister Andrew Mitchell told BBC Radio 4 that he expects Mr Sunak to agree to reform of the education system, 
and said the government will be guided by the best expertise on how we ratchet up standards. Concern about any proposed changes have already been raised by unions and other post-16 professional associations, particularly around the existing issues of recruitment, retention and concerns around workload. A spokesperson for the Sixth Form Colleges Association said the post-16 curriculum was narrow by international standards, and this was partly reflective of chronic underinvestment in Sixth Form education since 2010. The BBC also features an article on the fall in numbers of students being accepted into universities in the UK, the first fall in five years. Applications also fell after demand rose during the pandemic. Fewer students got into their first choice of university this year, but more qualified for their second choice or accepted places through clearing. The new data from UCAS shows 270,350 UK 18 year olds were accepted onto a course this year, down from 275,390 in 2022. UCAS says the figures show a return to normal growth following the surge of demand seen during the pandemic. Data for individual universities is not yet available. Last week on Teachers Talk Radio News, we featured reaction to the latest data published on suspensions and exclusions. In a linked story, Schools Week has published further analysis, this time focusing on data from schools linked to incoming Ofsted Chief Inspector Sir Martin Oliver. The analysis reported in the article suggests the Outwood Grange Academy's Trust secondaries excluded twice as many pupils as other schools in some of their regions. At a pre-appointment hearing before the Education Committee last month, Sir Martin was challenged by MPs over the Trust's high suspension rates. Sir Martin responded, our figures for permanent exclusions are lower than most in the areas in which we work. Schools Week says the data for the Trust's 13 secondary schools in Yorkshire and Humber had a 0.31 exclusion rate, the equivalent of three in every 1,000 pupils, compared to 0.17 across the region's other secondaries. In the North East, the Trust's seven secondaries had a rate of 0.64 compared to 0.3 in others. Kim Johnson, the only committee MP to vote against the appointment of Sir Martin, said he should be brought back to answer for his words. Frank Norris, an education advisor for the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, said the original comments could be viewed as misleading. A trust spokesperson told Schools Week that Sir Martin was comparing exclusion rates between some individual outward schools to some of the other schools in the same local authorities with similar profiles. Spokesperson also added that the schools had been underperforming for years and had now been transformed by the Trust. More details of the Schools Week analysis and full commentary can be found online. In Ireland, the Irish Independent reports on what it calls radical changes in how students are assessed as being on the way in a move to combat the threat of AI platforms such as ChatGPT. Higher education colleges are already being told to abandon certain forms of assessment because they are no longer sufficiently robust to award scores which count towards official grades. These include do-at-home assignments or essays, unsupervised online assessments and multiple choice quizzes which are conducted online. There will be greater reliance on oral assessments to check understanding and systems to identify if students have cheated by using AI. 
However, colleges are being told to resist any temptation to switch back to traditional end-of-semester formal e exams. Instead, they should consider short-term re-weighting of assessments whilst they formulate a long-term plan. Finally, this week saw Education Secretary Gillian Keegan comment in the House of Commons that children she had visited in schools affected by poor quality concrete, known as RAC, had been petitioning me to stay in the porter cabin because they preferred it to the actual classroom. Ms Keegan's comments were met with derision by many, saying it showed a chronic lack of understanding of the poor quality facilities schools had been using for many years, particularly since the cancellation of the project to rebuild many schools. However, Downing Street defended the comments, saying it reflected a conversation with children and that the department and leaders had worked hard to make sure children had been unaffected by the current challenge. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back to our show on reading with author and literacy expert Pam Allen. In the opening section of the show, Pam has discussed her early career experiences in the American education system and the figures that initially inspired her journey into teaching. So Pam, how did you become involved with delivering literacy training for teachers in an education system that has, by and large, rejected a nationwide approach to curriculum design? Right. Well, I, it really did come out of my classroom. Um, I started to uh, give presentations at conferences uh, about teaching reading and writing to my deaf students. And at first, teachers of the deaf, of course, would come to those sessions, but then they started telling other teachers who started telling other teachers. <laughs> and so before long, a lot of people were coming to my sessions at, when I give presentations. And so um, I was invited to go back to Teachers College and to join uh, a consortium of people who were doing a lot of work in teacher training, on-site teacher training. So we would go to schools and work right side by side with teachers uh, to help them to support their students as readers. And that's where I really got a huge amount of experience in uh, multi-grade level, multi-age um, experiences from all the way from early childhood all the way through high school. It, it seemed every day I was in a different classroom with a different group of, of young people. And to your point, Christopher, about uh, we don't have a set of nationwide standards, although that's been attempted time to time. Um, it's really very different state to state. And, um, and I was lucky that I got to travel all across the United States uh, and do my work in many different contexts. So if Florida's classrooms look quite different from California's classrooms, look quite different from Nebraska's, but I got to do a lot of that, which gave me a very interesting perspective on some of the universal truths about how children learn to read and then some kind of interesting things that I learned about when the approach is different, um, what what works and what doesn't. So um, I did do a lot of that and uh, was able to roll up my sleeves and just get in there with teachers. So that to me, I love that approach to professional development where I can be right there. So a teacher says, you know, I've got six really struggling readers. I'm, you know, I'm teaching middle school, high school. Um, and I, I know this is urgent. They need to get this under their belt. And so I would come in and be there in a residency with them for a week or two and just be in their classrooms with them. And we would investigate the situation. Really, I'd observe the young 
children in the room. Um, and then I would be the one doing the demonstrations and teaching so that teachers could, could record and take notes and, and be actually scholars of the work in the class. So that, to me, that's an amazing approach. And um, I know, you know, obviously we do a lot of things virtually these days, but there's just nothing like being together in a classroom with children to, to really push your thinking. And which year was it you started out on this training program? It was 19, let's see, 1986, 1988. It was 1990 was when I first began that work. And for the next decade after that, um, that was my work. I spent a lot of uh, my time thinking about how adults learn um, and how, how could I help uh, the, the teachers I was working with change their practice if, if I could see that there might be a better way because when you're an adult and a teacher, and we all know this, I know you do and I certainly do, you get kind of locked in your way um, and you think that's the only way. Um, and so I had to think a lot about the practice of adult learning and what could open people up to my point of view or what could open me up to theirs um, and bring my best practices around and, and be also influenced by them. Because um, like I said, the, the interesting thing about this country is that there's so many different ways of doing it. So I could carry along something I learned in one place and bring it to the next place. So uh, it was, it was wow, it was really exciting. I mean, we did a lot of uh, collaboration, a lot of teachers meeting on their off time and doing retreats together and really sitting and thinking about what curriculum could look like. and. It was, it was very exciting. I mean, those were really days before we applied standards-based curriculum. So we were writing a lot of our own curriculum and trying things out. Then we'd write something the day before, then try it out the next day, and then make a change based on what our students were telling us. And it was, it was great. It was a great training for me, I'll say. So most of this would have taken place under the Clinton presidency that I'm thinking. So. Did the US authorities have a particular view on what American standards of literacy were like when you started this work? Did they have a view on what the perceived strengths and weaknesses were of a student working in Nebraska or a student working in Alaska or a student working in Mississippi? Well, I think there was a sense that um, all across the country, we need to get the literacy rates up. Um, it was a kind of shocking data that showed us that it's not like there's one pocket of fabulousness in this country. Um, and also that, you know, from the urban to the rural to the suburban areas, um, ob obviously the elephant is always in the room that where there's the highest poverty, rates of poverty, there's the highest illiteracy. And when you actually really think about it, if most of learning to read is really about the strategies of learning to read, then we shouldn't have so much inequity in our system. I think that um, at that time, there were a lot of discussions about should there be uh, nationwide standards? Um, and there was a long process um, that led to a movement called the Common Core Standards, which were uh, really influenced by Bill Gates and other corporate people who met with a governor's panel, interestingly enough, not so much at the federal national level, but at the state level and brought the governors together and said, could we actually say that there's a way to teach literacy and, and some outcomes that we're trying to seek that could be apl apl 
applicable to everybody because whether you live in Nebraska or Florida, you're still struggling and we don't want that to happen. So there was an attempt made in that direction um, and it, it was received a lot of backlash um, for a number of political reasons. But what was interesting was that, um, and you might be interested in this, but something I always remembered someone said to me was the name Common Core Standards meant that the, the conservative, uh, conservative people did not like the word common and the liberal people did not like the word core. So it was just never going to work. Um, but what happened, what I thought was so interesting is that those standards were written and actually they were pretty good, but the politics just would not allow a national stand, set of standards. So what happened was each state from Nebraska to Florida to California to New York, et cetera, they all just sort of revised those common core standards and made them more their own. So now you see it'll say Nebraska English language arts standards or Florida literacy standards. And when you look at them, they're not all that much different, but they, they each have a little touch here and there that shows you, for example, um, you know, one state might have a lot to say about handwriting and another state might not care about it at all. Um, one state might talk a lot more about phonics and another state might talk a lot more about uh, comprehension. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're a lot more similar than people think. And it did serve that early discussions around those really did serve to, I think, improve, um, improve teaching practice because uh, it, the conversation gave people a little bit more of a roadmap. And, um, and I feel like, you know, every president we've had, they always, each one of them always says they're the education president. You know, they always want to claim victory in that, but it's, you know, education is really complicated and our system, a public system, it's, I mean, there's a lot of kids and we have a lot of new language learners. You know, we, we refer to them in the public system as newcomers, um, lots of different languages. Uh, I mean, I know your, your, your country has that too. And I think it's very exciting. I actually find it a plus, but, um, but I think for, um, for, for schools trying to figure out what the best way is to teach multilingual children, uh, these standards are actually pretty good. And I think it's good to have a little bit of a roadmap. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but I think the politics are always there in education here in, in our country that they're just always there. And I think teachers kind of, I say to them, just, you really just have to find the good in a lot of what's written and then really try to make it your own because there are some very smart people who worked on these standards and there's some beautiful gems in there that can help you a lot. And I don't want you to waste your time being, in fact, Robert Frost is the one who said, he said, I always write what I'm for, not what I'm against. And that's what I always say to teachers, just teach what you're for, not what you're against, and you'll be fine. Yeah, we're currently going through a new wave of potential politicization of education here oh. in the UK because we think we're probably at most two years away from the, the general election, ah. which uh, could bring a lot of changes to a lot of places across the country. Yeah, what will be, so, what do you think will, like what kind of changes are being discussed? Are there? Oh, we've got, we've got some big issues at the moment. So the latest one this week is that the UK Prime Minister has suggested that he'd like to change the way our students do English, maths, and their other subjects from the age of 16 to 18. Wow. 
across the whole of the UK, which is interesting because huh. England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales actually have their own education right. ministers responsible for their own things in their own countries. Wow. So we're interested to see what the proposals of that will look like. Interesting. Um, and again, the standards are quite different. So if you move from the education system in Scotland to England as a student, you could be studying completely different types of qualifications that don't even have the same name with additional subjects right. or fewer subjects. And wow. all of those students are competing often to get places at the same universities that we have, particularly in England and Scotland. So, yeah, it's always politicized to some degree. Yes. Education. Interesting. It really is. I mean, it's like a lightning rod for politics. And I think that's very hard for teachers because they're in classrooms with real children, real teenagers, um, and they have to keep moving along and do the human work of teaching. Uh, politicians are so far removed from the classroom. Um, it, it It's just hard to even get your head around. I just saw something very interesting, speaking of national or um, sweeping change or reforms at this, uh, I was just reading about Sweden um, saying that they are going to be removing technology from all their classrooms across the country um, and, it, and it really urging schools to go back to a pre-technology um, environments and i i thought that was fascinating i i'm very excited to see how that plays out yeah there's lots of discussion around that here too actually um mm. we're looking to scandinavia wow. or have been looking to scandinavia for at least the last 25 years in the uk to see what works there mm. um worth remembering of course that many of the countries in scandinavia have somewhat different demographic uh, makeups to both the UK and, of course, the US. Right. Right. And I'm right. thinking then, as you move through into this 1990s environment where there's a kind of discussion about standards, but nothing set in stone on a federal level, how do you then deal with the different questions that teachers coming along to your sessions might have about how they should be doing the teaching of reading, particularly? and the teaching of writing? I mean, I think actually, when I think about it, that was such an exciting time because we weren't looking to the state or federal level to, to guide us. You know, teaching felt like a very creative act. It felt like a, teachers would come together uh, at conferences. We would have institutes and retreats. Uh, professional learning was really on the rise it was something that teachers wanted and they did and they did even on their own time i remember i had a leadership group in new york city and we met like saturday mornings you know we weren't paid for it or anything we just wanted so much to do it and i think a lot of the work at that time was about things like for example we'd have a question does children's literature does using children's literature in the classroom make an impact in student achievement outcomes? Um, does it make students more confident and make them want to read more outside of school? We were just asking our own questions. We weren't even using the word data. We were just saying, I'm really interested in that question. I want to try that out. And then before you knew it, you had a group of other like-minded teachers and they would say, that's a really interesting question. I'm going to study that with my students too. 
And I, I feel like we had a kind of a, a movement around teacher professionalism that I think, unfortunately, I'll say doesn't feel quite the same now. But I think that the the energy then wasn't so much about what I, I can or can't do based on what, you know, Nebraska, the governor says I need to do and more um, what is it that I see my students struggling with that I could do better for them and getting together a group of like thought leadership to be with you in that process. The other thing I feel like we did a lot more of back in that time, and that this was like the heyday of that was um, professional reading. There were so many incredible books being published uh, for teachers and we all read them and we, we, we talked about them and we'd go hear those authors speak. And, um, and it just, so much excitement was happening uh, at, at that time. And I remember, you know, my own daughters were also in elementary school when I was doing that work. And, um, and I would even just go into the, their, their classrooms. I'd ask the teacher, can I come in and just, I have a new idea about the teaching of writing. I just want to try it out. I need a class, you know, and she would say, come in, come in. I'd love it. I'd love it. And then to this day, some of those teachers are actually people who are speaking at conferences and writing their own books now. So I'm proud to say, I think I had an impact on them too. But I think that the, you know, what happened when the standards came was that kind of tamped down on some of this. It was, it became a little less about professional learning lives of teachers and more about aligning to curriculum and, um, and, and being, uh, having quote fidelity to the, the standards. And so that changes things. I mean, I, I won't, you know, I'll tell you, I, I thought that was kind of the golden age of professional, of teacher professionalism. I hope it, I hope it'll come back. I think it's hard for teachers when they have so much pressure on them to meet these standards. And sometimes their students aren't really anywhere near those standards when they come into that grade level. But, uh, but it's, I mean, the nineties were a time of, of exploration and excitement, discovery, collaboration. It was, it was amazing then. So if we could go back then and chuck out all of the stuff that we <laughs> don't think we really need to worry about, how would that change your philosophy to approaching the teaching of reading, Pam, if we didn't have to worry about all the other admin stuff? Well, I mean, I'll say this. I, I think I, I've studied the teaching of reading for obviously my whole career. I know all the kind of ways we do this work and lots of, and I embrace the science of reading and all kinds of different ways that we think about it. But I'll tell you, like at the core of all of it, and this goes back to that time and, you know, the nineties pre standards is at the end of the day, like a child and a book, a child and a story. This is a profound, almost ineffable experience that happens when you're reading a novel or you're reading, you know, bent over a comic book or, uh, reading a, a, a riddle book with a friend and just laughing your head off. Those are really hard to explain things about what reading actually is and what it does for you and how you even got to do it. And I think a little bit, sometimes I think we, we want all the answers for everything. We want everything to be fully known. And I would love to go, if I could, I would say, if I could live back in that time, there are two things that come out for me are one, let there be magic in how reading happens. Cause it's actually a miracle every time it does for anybody. 
And then don't make it so grim. It's, it's really, there's something so otherworldly about it. You know, let there be more of that. And then the second thing is, I would say is the power of story itself, that stories that you tell that are within you, that when you come to read a book, like you're never going to read Emily Dickinson exactly the way I read Emily Dickinson, because you are your own person. You are Christopher with your own stories and your own life and your own wonderful talents and skills and gifts. And also the journeys that you've had. And I'm my own person, Pam Allen. I have my own way of coming to that Emily Dickinson text. And I think we've lost a little bit of that too. Like that nobody reads a, a passage or a text exactly the same way, nor should they. That's the whole beauty of it. And um, that goes back to that power of story that, that I think we should give a little bit more regard in a certain way, pay it a little more tribute, pay it a little more respect that story itself is the innovation of humankind. And I think if we, you know, give more space to it to say, how is this, how is this book making you feel less lonely? Or how is this book making you want to change the world? Asking more questions like that of our students, making it a bigger conversation, making it a more important conversation than who's the main character? What's the main idea? Tell me five details in the story. Who reads like that? You know, nobody really reads like that. But if you go back to this bigger place, then it's about storytelling. And I think no matter what the genre is, whether it's poetry, nonfiction, fiction, it, it still is about story at the end of the day. And I feel like that was there. And now a lot of my work is about almost reminding of people of how extraordinary it is to actually put like something that looks just like a set of pages in front of someone or a screen in front of them. And, and suddenly as you read, everything starts popping to life. I mean, that's just amazing. Like that, when you close the page on that chapter, you feel like, you know, Harry Potter is still waiting for you at the other side of that door, you know, or um, the, you know, Lucy and Edmund are still visiting Narnia. You open the book and all of a sudden, poop, they pop out at you again. It's like crazy how brilliant that is. So I think a little bit of that should come. We need that back. It's, it's really, we're going to lose kids as readers if we don't show them the magic, which I love about what you were describing in the independent reading that your students are doing in your school. Cause I think that there is a magic in that, you know, you're giving them the agency to have some magic. Yeah. At the moment we're still doing the silent reading thing with the discussion of the book talk on the Friday uh, evenings. But what is the connection, Pam, that we've got to make between reading internally silently for ourselves and then reading aloud, which is something you're very keen on? Well, I think that too. I think we can ask more open-ended questions of our students. We can say to them, what's a passage you're really wondering about? What's, what's part of this book that you're really surprised by? What are the chapters or verses that made you feel like your life was being changed as you read them? What was the funniest page that you read of this whole book? Those are the kinds of questions I want teachers to ask students, as opposed to a sense of the child feels like they're being quizzed or you know, tested all the time. What are the questions that you don't know the answers to that you could ask that same question to 
20 students to get 20 different That's where I feel like then it can go out. Where I would say to myself, choose a passage that really moved you, that really made you, and let's everybody read those passages aloud to each other. There, that is an amazing moment in a classroom. And I think that's, that's really where, for me, the read aloud, it, it does matter because I feel like you're taking something. So that, to me, that's why I think the read aloud, and by the way, it can be the read aloud through sign language. It doesn't have to be aloud aloud, but it's just that bringing the reading that you're doing independently to a wider audience. If that makes sense, that. Thank you, Pam. You started to break up a little there. We didn't oh. necessarily catch everything of what you said, but the importance of reading aloud as being oh. something that enables people to uh, perhaps develop maybe the confidence to read in public, or is there something else going on there too, did you think? Well, I think it is about reading in public. But I would almost say reading in community, um, feeling like you have people who have your back and who are with you and who are going to experience even part of that story with you. Um, and I think that's more powerful than, than people think. And I think especially for young people to think of reading as not something you have to do alone, but something you do in community is very motivational and helps people feel like they, they will want to read more because they want to be part of this community. It's really fun. It's really joyous. It's a real sense of belonging. And I, yeah, there's I, definitely a sense of that. That's something yeah, we're trying yeah. to engage with in our own monastic context. We're in a <laughs> monastery school and there's a sense that some of the things that, you know, the monks have written about for centuries, we're trying to bring in in mm. a slightly fashion in our own context. Oh, that's beautiful. What what are you what are you thinking with that? What's your thought about that? Well, some of our house parents are trying out some quite interesting things. So the monks typically um, eat in silence every day or a couple of days in the week, and somebody will read a passage while they're all having their lunch. So it's mm. something we're trying to bring in in small measure. It's not something we want to do every day, but it might be something that would be worth doing every now and again. So that the students are given an opportunity to A, read aloud, B, hear people read aloud and C, think about what that reading might generate later on in terms of shared conversations and shared memories. It does seem mm. to me something important about that public act of reading because, of course, in a Christian context, it's something that we're quite familiar with in our church services. But that's a very particular kind of text that's being read mm. where we listen to the, the priest delivering a homily or sermon. Mm. So giving the students the opportunity to read something in their own voice is something we think is quite mm. valuable. And we're still trying to find, I think, the correct way of capturing that. Oh, I love that. I think that's really beautiful. And I do think that uh, everybody has like I said earlier, you know, how I remember my mother's voice all those years ago. And I think for your students to practice their own way of owning or being present to the text, I mean, that's just really powerful. 
And I, I love that. I, just even practicing it, like just saying to the students, we're just trying this out, I think is, is worth a lot right there. What kind of techniques were people trying out to develop read aloud in the 80s and 90s? Well, we were doing a lot of uh, performative, you know, real performance based read alouds, putting read alouds to music, um, putting them to beats, using drums, um, just reading, taking parts. So having one person do one character's voice and another doing another character's acting out the whole text. Um, and then simply just reading in small groups, like sitting together in a circle and having students be the ones leading the read aloud um, and just letting everyone really relax and enjoy it. And, uh, and sometimes also what's really nice about that sort of style of a read aloud, if the teacher is doing it, is it also gives students the opportunity to hear text that might be hard for them to read on their own. But if they're being read to that vocabulary and that uh, all of that, those ideas, can marinate inside that child um, and give them, um, or teenager, and, and give them access to vocabulary and language structures that, that they're not really going to get just on their own. Um, they're, so, so those are some of the things. But also, um, we've had students, or we had in those days too, like students who would read aloud to the class and then have the class paint their response or have the class making something like clay or making sculptures in response. So the read aloud doesn't have to stay static, but it becomes very multi-dimensional and multi-experiential. And then when we came up with the idea for World Read Aloud Day, um, we that idea, we thought, what if we could unite the world around read alouds? Like everybody could do their own read alouds. You don't have to pick one book. It can be whatever book is or text is relevant for your community and then share that out. What did you read aloud today? And even that has had huge impact because people say, oh my goodness, you know, it's helping me learn cultural differences and what people, you know, are reading in their communities already. Um, sometimes it would be not only reading aloud text that's already been written, but actually reading aloud from students' own writing, which is very empowering for them. So having them write their own stories and then say, let's use those stories to read aloud from. So those are some of the things, but, but I do love that you're incorporating that and thinking about it as an experiment. I think that's really awesome. Well, it's great to hear some of the techniques you've been using. One of our listeners has texted the show tonight to say, you read aloud with tone, frequency, resonance, and enthusiasm, as well as mm. subtlety as a direction in the narrative. And this uh, listener is Beautiful. listening in from Northeast Indiana this evening. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, hello from Indiana. And also that's, uh, those are beautiful words to describe a powerful read aloud. So thank you for that sharing. And it's wonderful to hear how these developments were picking up in the 1980s and 1990s at a time, of course, before internet support groups for practitioners had really begun to take off. It seems to me that beginning teachers have access to more advice guidance and support today than they almost know what to do with. And this wealth of device seems to always come with a kind of tribalism. I mean, I know education wasn't without its warring tribes 25 years ago, but I surely can't be alone in thinking that professional development and teacher training has become quite a fertile landscape for disagreements about how to address 
the latest totem pole that someone's just put up. How do you feel about the increasing shift towards the online world as a space for professional development training, Pam? Well, I mean, during COVID, I was relieved that people made that pivot and I could keep doing my work. Um, teachers would come together. We had a lot of online support for each other and all of that. But as we've come out of that period, I have to say I feel a lot of pangs for the old days when you know, we would just get together, go in a classroom, sit beside a child, unpack what was really challenging, um, be there for that child, step back, do a, what we often called a fishbowl, where we'd look at maybe I would be doing a conference, a writing conference, a reading conference with a child. Then we'd all step back and talk about what we observed. And I feel like, you know, the technology really kind of, you could use it for that, but people don't always. So a lot of the professional learning tends to be online and, you know, listening to a speaker while you're doing something else. Um, and there is a loss to that. There's no question there's a loss to that. Just like Sweden is saying there's a loss to everyone if that's the only kind of learning we're doing. So I feel like there has been, I think we're not going to even know the effects of this for a long time, but I do think that these three years that we kind of gave it over to, you know, caution, which of course, but we lost being together. And I'm, I'm just hopeful that people will start to say, you know what, there is such a thing as too much technology actually. Um, and let's get back to the day when we could be together. Um, I think there's a, a, a world in which there's a combination that could really work. Um, but right now I think we swung way far over to the, I can get all my professional training from a YouTube video. Um, it just isn't quite the same. I remember we had a child in one of my classrooms, my, at my school for the deaf, and he was really, we were really challenged. We were really trying to figure things out. And then I had a, a colleague come from teacher's college and she came and worked in my classroom for one day. And it was, I was just starting out in my career and um, she had been someone I had student taught with and she came and visited our school and she came into my room. And I just, to, to this day, some of the techniques that she used with that child are ones that I still use. And I wonder if they're most memorable because she was right with me. She was right there with me with that child. Uh, so, you know, we can't, what are we gonna do? Like, I feel like I, I can scale my work a lot more easily because of technology. So I thank technology for that, but I do have a wistfulness about being together with everyone. Yeah, I think that's, it goes back to that community idea, doesn't it? Yeah. It's been running through the show tonight. And it's great to hear such a positive view of your teaching colleague making a difference in that physical space at that physical moment. In the final section of the show, Pam, I'd like us to reflect on how teachers and parents might focus on helping children develop their oral reading in particular, and what suggestions you might have for encouraging the development of this crucial skill both inside and outside the classroom. And we'll be right back after this. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, 
specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. Welcome back to the final part of our discussion on literacy and reading with Pam Allen. We've covered the role that educator training can play in supporting child literacy development, Pam, but it might help our listeners if we could consider some of the concrete steps that teachers and parents can take to support children's accurate and sensitive reading aloud as they move through the education system. But first, I suppose one has to ask, what are the benefits of children regularly reading aloud? And how can we be sure that any benefits we might observe are not just secondary effects of other pedagogical interventions? Well, I mean, there are two things. One is um, just to separate out the power and role of the adult reading to children, because that also has huge value um, and something we really advocate for on World Read Aloud Day and then through all my programs is valuing the space that we give for us as teachers to read to our students without evaluation, without testing, really just to give that space up, even if it's 10 minutes a day for you to do that. And it can be the Emily Dickinson poem, or it can be a chapter in a book, or it can be a page from the sports paper, um, whatever it is that you feel you'd like to be compelled to share. But there's a lot of research around that too. There is an important study that says that children who are read aloud to on a daily basis perform up to a year better academically in school. And that accounts, they've accounted for um, disparities, economic disparities and other disparities in that study. So that's one part. And then the second part is children themselves reading aloud, um, where in which case they're practicing their fluency, their expression, uh, their, uh, their pacing, um, their uh, oral uh, to, uh, to, you know, uh, affinity for the sound of language and deconstructing language um, as they go. And so those are two things. So the first thing I, I sort of made that case um, to say that I would like to see that every teacher, no matter what grade, what age you're teaching, um, you make space for you to read aloud to your students because even marinating them in that higher level text, um, let's say I'm reading aloud Robert Frost to my kindergartners, they might not be able to read him on their own, but because I'm reading aloud to them, I'm able to give them higher level text in uh, through the oral approach. So there is a huge body of research that shows that there's a lot of benefit to that, both in terms of what they get from that experience in terms of vocabulary and also in terms of language and uh, sentence structures. So, um, and, and also just knowledge, uh, overall knowledge. And that, so that's one part. And then the second is the part about um, the children reading aloud and the practice that they gain from doing that. I would want to couch that by saying, let's make sure it's a safe, positive, happy, healthy environment that when they read aloud, they're not being made fun of, they're not being made to feel like they can't, 
Um, you have to work on that with your students. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Ernest Morell and I wrote a book called Every Child a Super Reader. And in that book, we spend a lot of time talking about the read aloud and why it's so important. And we also talk about the techniques that we can use to help our children practice reading aloud in safe ways. We talk about building communities of belonging. Um, we talk about uh, building communities of confidence and courage. And part of that is raising your voice as a reader. Um, and one of those things that I love about World Read Aloud Day, we, we invented this holiday, but it's, as you said earlier, really a strong, big day celebrated across uh, many countries. And one of the things I love about that day, it's a day that you can practice doing more of this um, without making overall commitments. You can say, you know what? Yes, we're all going to celebrate it. It happens the first Wednesday of every February. And um, Scholastic is the sponsor. So if you're interested, you can go to scholastic.com and get more in, in information or litworld.org, which is the founder and creator with me of World Read Aloud Day. But, but in truth, the thing about the, the sort of techniques around children reading aloud is we are practicing fluency and expression. Um, we are practicing pacing. Um, we are practicing confidence. And in order to do all those things, we have to have really good literature. Um, we can't ask our students to read aloud from textbooks because most of the time that's really boring. Nobody wants to hear those books read aloud. Um, they're not that fun to read even on your own, but much less read aloud to the community. So it's very important. I would say one of my number one requests is that teachers look at your classroom libraries if you don't have books kids really want to read, then you need to advocate to your uh, administrators to get those books or get access to those books. And those books are often books that might not be on the required reading list, but they're books that the children love. They're funny books. They're sad books. They're amusing books. They're informational books. Um, they might even be browsing books. They might be books about uh, soccer, football, uh, animals, uh, wild animals, like things that kids really love. Um, bring those books into your classrooms. And it's not just um, in the English class, but also in the science class, in the history class, in the mathematics class, bring in biographies of great mathematicians, of people who've done really interesting things. Um, I wrote a program last summer with my colleague, Mike Flynn, called Math Camp. And in that program, we have a series of math heroes um, from different walks of life. Uh, one is a video game inventor, one is an astronaut, um, et cetera. And we wrote little hero bios for each one of them. And oh my goodness, our campers love to read those hero bios. They just absolutely loved it. And they love to read those aloud. Uh, they loved it. And I think a lot of why they loved it is the content is just really inspiring. Uh, so. In terms of the read aloud, make sure you check yourselves as teachers to say, am I asking my students to read things that are fun and funny and exciting and interesting? Now, I know when we're doing learn to read books like that say things like the cat is fat on the mat, might not sound that exciting, but we can make it exciting. We can put it to a beat. We can put it to a rhythm. We can put it to music. We can put it to song. The thing about the read aloud is it actually is important. It's like, I'm not even going to mince words. It's actually really important. Classrooms, where I walk into a classroom, I can tell you within 10 minutes if a teacher never reads aloud to their students, because you see a difference in the environment, you see a difference in the community, 
and the confidence that students have to just approach a text and say, you know what, I can do this. This is going to feel good. Um, you see that right away. So the read aloud to me is really important, but it's not just about the students reading aloud to each other. It's about the teacher reading aloud to the students. And that's what we celebrate on World Read Aloud Day. And I hope everybody who ends up listening to the podcast, you'll all join in. Uh, go to scholastic.com, go to litworld.org and, uh, and join into the fun because it is really, really fun. And a few words for those teachers who are also parents of younger children. Anything they can do to encourage this process of reading aloud in the home? Yes. I mean, I think there is a great opportunity for teachers to send home books or for parents and caregivers to um, enroll their children in finding books that everyone's going to love, uh, whether it's at the library or the bookstore or on your, on your uh, device, um, and to see, really pay attention to your child's passions and interests. So if your child loves to cook with you, um, get a cookbook and read that aloud to each other. I mean, I have very strong memories of my grandmother uh, reading me her uh, cookie recipes uh, and her brownie recipes um, just orally. And I just, the sound of that too always stays with me. Um, it doesn't seem like it would be so exciting to read a recipe, but from her to me, it really was. And inviting your students, I mean, your children at home to actually read aloud from fun things like while you're cooking dinner, while you're doing another chore to say, would you read aloud to me while I'm doing that? It always makes me feel so good. So let them know that you're not doing it to be punitive or to give them a score or to tell them someday they'll go to university, but actually just to say right in this moment, I just want to be with you and I love you and I love to hear your voice. So will you just do that for me? If you're reading a comic strip or you're, um, reading a joke book or you're reading a novel chapter book, just read, read to me the first chapter. I just want to hear you read it to me. And without a judgment and without saying you're doing something wrong, don't stop them. If they're stumbling over a word, let them, let them do it, let them get through it. And if they're really struggling, definitely come over, take a look at the word and let them know what it is. I don't want mean that anybody should suffer, but what I do mean is create an environment of joy around the read aloud. Great words of advice, Pam. Last question tonight, if that's okay. okay. Sure. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> I just started the, uh, believe it or not, the Elon Musk biography by Walter Isaacson, um, because he wrote an amazing book about Steve Jobs that I really, really liked. Um, and uh, I'm not sure this subject is as exciting to me, but I do think he's our greatest biographer uh, uh, working right now. Um, and then the other book that I'm reading um, right this minute is um, a, a book um, called, uh, oh my goodness, wait, let me just find the name of it again. So I'm just looking at my, at my Kindle because I just couldn't remember exactly the name of it. Uh, oh, it's called Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. Um, and um, it's just, uh, in fact, interestingly, I'm just opening it so I can tell you, uh, give you a little synopsis. And amazingly, the quote that she opens with in the epigraph is by Emily Dickinson. And it says, I lost, isn't that something? I, this is meant to be, she says, I lost a world the other day. Has anybody found? And that's the opening, <laughs> that's the opening of this book. 
but it's called happiness falls. And uh, I just started that. I just put that up at the top of my Kindle. Um, but as for um, books that I've liked in the last uh, several um, months, um, I really liked a biography of Martin Luther King called King. I thought was really, really good. Um, I also really loved um, a book called I Have Some Questions for You um, by Rebecca. It's a kind of a mysterious, um, it's a novel, kind of a suspense novel. And then um, what was the one I read right before this one? I read, uh, where was this other one? I'm just looking at my, oh, this, um, I read a mystery by Harlan Coben called Caught. I really do love mysteries, so I do read a lot of those. Um, and for young adult books, um, always looking at Kwame Alexander, if you haven't read him yet. Um, he's written amazing books for children and young adults, including a uh, crossover and a picture book called The Undefeated. So lots of good stuff. How about you? Anything good? Oh, I've just relatively recently finished reading um, Percival Everett's The Trees, which I thought oh. was a very powerful and very strange book. Um, quite an important book, I think. Oh, yes. Everyone raves about it. I'm going to give that a go now that you've mentioned it. Yeah, I, it's definitely worth reading. I'm not sure it's the kind of book I'll read more than once because it's quite <laughs> affecting. Oh. Um, but yeah, quite powerful. Coincidentally, a couple of my colleagues had read it for different reasons um, mm. at my school. Uh, actually, people working in my politics department huh. rather than our English department. Um, so yeah, there you go. Yeah. Teachers as readers, well. it's important that we're in the flow of it just as much as our students are oh yes most definitely and the thing is you know i would say to everyone just to encourage you to read what you're interested in don't worry it doesn't have to be long it doesn't have to be hard it can be a light mystery it can be a, a romance novel it can be something you know funny that you've enjoyed it, reading for reading's sake is just a great thing to do for your mind and your heart and your soul and i think it's really good for everybody and and people do judge themselves on, you know, they have to finish all books. You don't have to finish all books. It's not always necessary to do that. And um, just enjoy it and find joy in it. And uh, your students will see you doing that and want to do it too. Fantastic. And on that note, Pam, I think we've approached the end of this evening's show. So thank okay. you so much for your contributions. Well, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful show. And um, I really appreciate all your very wise and thoughtful questions and, and also just hearing a little bit about your work, which sounds amazing. So thanks to everybody for having me and uh, have a good day or evening. Yes, I've greatly enjoyed our discussion and hearing about the difference you've made to the children you've taught and the difference you continue to make in your various training roles around America and beyond. Uh, my colleagues and I will certainly be looking out for World Read Aloud Day next year and seeing how we might further develop our reading program for the benefit of the whole school community. I wish you every success with your work for the new school year and hope we might talk again once we have established a new community of readers in our school. So thank you very that. much indeed, Pam. Thank you so much, Christopher, and thanks to everybody. And I, I appreciate that and you too. And talk again soon, I hope.
Thank you very much. Good night. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. Well, thanks again to Pam Alin for her thoughts on reading and literacy teaching. And thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows this week. We have a number of new hosts continuing to make their debuts this month. So check out the schedule on the website and give them a listen if you can. I'm sure they'd appreciate your support and in-show text messages. Emily Edwards' show on Tuesday at 9pm examines the important topic of how educators might build positive working relationships with their students, while Paul Hazard's show on Thursday at 9pm looks like a good one for those of you into your drama, as he discusses the value of audio drama as a teaching resource with Professor Dan Rebellato. As always, you can also catch up on anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org. If you would like to hear more about reading, then Sean Mackay's School Library show is essential listening. Or if you're an NQT or ECT mentor wondering how to go about surviving this academic year while supporting new colleagues, you might want to give Sabrina's show in professional mentoring a listen. And if you have something you want to say or ask others about education anywhere on planet Earth, then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings. Full details can be found on our website, www.ttradio.org. That's all from me for this month. So thank you for listening. I wish you a successful and book-filled autumn half-term, and we will speak again in October. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.